Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Have you ever heard something over and over again? Uh, Like a phrase that's been repeated so much, you probably have it memorized. Uh, Maybe you're even annoyed by it. Uh, This happens to us all the time in marketing. Uh, I'm going to start a sentence, and I'm gonna invite you at all of the locations to finish this sentence. Um, 15 minutes can save you. 15% or more on car insurance. You got this, you guys got it. Here we go. Uh, one, one more. Uh, like a good neighbor. All right. See, we, we all know these. We've heard them. You almost have to sing that one. Uh, I, I do have one more for you. This one's been my favorite uh, in the sense that it's a good example. Uh, I don't like this one at all, but I've heard it a ton since moving to the Northwest. Uh, Shane Company and ShaneCo.com. Now you have a friend in the diamond business. Right. We, we've heard these before. This is how cliches happen. Uh, cliches being popular, overused, often memorized by the masses. Uh, and, and I want to suggest that uh, just because something is a cliche, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Uh, it also doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. Uh, let me give you examples of both of these. If you're in the group that thinks uh, just because something is a cliche means it's true, I have a couple for you that you might want to think otherwise. Uh, finish this thought for me. If you love something, set it free, or I've heard let it go. Um, let's just follow this logic for a moment, okay? Okay. I love my wife. Should I go home today and say, hey, I heard this phrase, supposedly it's true because it's a cliche, it has to be true. Uh, Babe, I'm gonna have to let you go. Uh, That's not gonna go well. In fact, she's the breadwinner in the family, so if anybody's letting anybody go, she's letting me go, and it's not gonna go well for me. Good thing this isn't true, per se. Uh, One more. Uh, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Again, if we follow the logic here, this would give you full permission to walk up to me with a baseball bat and just kneecap me. Think about it. And I, as I'm arriving in pain, I would have to say thank you uh, because you didn't kill me and therefore, according to this, made me stronger, right? Well, at the same time, uh, just because something is a cliche, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not true. I, I think there are great cliches out there. A few examples, actions speak louder than words. You know, yeah, we, we've all heard people talk and talk about stuff, but sometimes their actions don't line up. That's troublesome. Uh, uh, what about you can't please everyone? I, I think there's great truth found in that cliche. Maybe someone needed to hear that today. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, there's sometimes a lot that lays below the surface. Don't judge a book by its cover. And my question as we start today is just because an idea becomes cliche, does that impact its truthfulness? In other words, if we begin with a truth, but it becomes cliche, is it less true than when it was originally coined? 
Well, my name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here at Abundant Life, and I wanna welcome you, whatever campus you're joining us at, if you're in Sandy or Vancouver, here in Happy Valley, if you are watching online, listening to a podcast, we're glad that you are here with us, and we are continuing in our series going through the Gospel of John. So if you have a journal with you, go ahead, grab that. We're gonna be in week four today. And I have titled my message, One Day, Yet Right Now. And so if you're uh, looking at your journals, there's a spot to write that down. One day, yet right now. And if you have a Bible with you, Bible app on a phone or a physical Bible, uh, grab that. We're gonna be in John chapter three. Now in today's passage, we're going to look at uh, what is arguably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. In, in terms of cliche being popular, overused, memorized by the masses, uh, this verse would definitely qualify. Uh, in fact, I would suggest most of us here today, no matter what our church background is, have heard this verse, uh, for God so loved the world, right? We, we've all heard this probably in some context or another. Uh, if you've watched football, chances are you've seen Tim Tebow uh, with his John 3.16. Uh, we've all seen this in some context. Uh, but I'd argue that this passage in this verse in particular became cliche for a reason. I think there are profound truths in this text that we're going to look at today. And my goal here is to take a very well-known passage and to go a little bit deeper with it. St. Augustine has a quote about the Gospel of John. He says, John's gospel is deep enough for elephants to swim and yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. Uh, what he's saying there is, again, you don't have to have a ton of Bible context, Bible knowledge uh, to go into the gospel of John and learn a ton about who Jesus is. Uh, at the same time, uh, you can swim with the elephants, per se. Uh, this is a gospel that you can go deep into. You could spend a lifetime studying, many scholars have, and you would uncover more and more and more truth as you go. So today, I, I hope to take a little swim with the elephants in, in a passage that seems to be shallow, seems to be one that we've heard before, we know it well. I want to take us a little bit deeper, and I think there is great truth to be found as we go. Now, if you've heard John 3.16, right, I want you to, to bring that text uh, to, to your imagination really quick. Uh, so if you haven't heard it, it goes something like, God loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him, they will not perish, but instead they will have eternal life. So if you can imagine those words in that scene, um, using your imagination, who is there? Uh, where, where is this taking place? Who is talking? Who are they talking to? Who's listening? Who is the audience here? Uh, there's typically two different ways to look at this passage, uh, John 3, 13 through 21. Uh, the first way is uh, to see this as like an ominous voice kind of narrating what's happening here. You know, kind of like a, a Morgan Freeman voice, if you will. And there are many Bible scholars who think that's what's happening here. If you remember two weeks ago, we were looking at a conversation earlier in John 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. And many Bible scholars think we've now uh, taken a break from that. We've got the narrator filling in some gaps before we go into the story in John 4. At the same time, though, there are other groups of people who would say, no, 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 that's not what's happening. Instead, Jesus is continuing that conversation with Nicodemus. 
And I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense here. Uh, the reality is we're not sure, uh, but I would say more, uh, more scholars lean towards that idea. In, in fact, if you have a Bible in front of you or a Bible app, depending on the app, um, what color is John 3, 13 through 21 in? It's in red in most of our texts. The translators are making a decision there that this is Jesus speaking. I don't know if you knew that every time uh, the Bible appears in red that it's communicating Jesus is talking. Um, I've, I also don't know if you knew that that wasn't in the original text, in the original manuscripts. I don't know if you knew this. They did not pull out their red pen every time Jesus was talking. Uh, we added that later, and those translators are making a decision. They think Jesus is still talking here, and I think it makes sense. If you remember, Jesus had just reprimanded Nicodemus, right? He's like, Nicodemus, you of all people, you should understand what I'm talking about, and yet you don't. I want to teach you about heavenly things. You're not even getting the earthly things. And we see here, this is a transition into a conversation about heavenly things, so I think Jesus is continuing this conversation and we find it in John 3. Let's start with verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, there's a couple things going on here. The first one is that the Son of Man has come down from heaven. The, the kingdom of heaven is being established here on earth right now by the Son of Man. Uh, the question is, who is the Son of Man? You know, it's a very churchy phrase, uh, one that if you haven't heard before probably sounds pretty strange. Jesus says he's the Son of Man. Well, if you remember back to John 1, uh, there was a guy named Philip who followed Jesus, was enamored by Jesus, so much so that he went and he got his brother Nathaniel. He's like, Nathaniel, you gotta check this guy out. Nathaniel comes before Jesus, and he's like a little bit skeptical, like who is this guy, where did he come from? Uh, but by the end of the conversation, Nathaniel declares to Jesus that surely you are the son of God, uh, the son of theos, where we get our word theology, the study of God. And Jesus, in response, says that he's the son of man, the son of anthropos, where we get our, our word anthropology, the study of humans, right? And so in this conversation, we see incredible insight into who Jesus is, an essential belief about who Jesus is, that he is the son of man and he's the son of God. Sometimes we use these words interchangeably, but they're very different. And we are seeing the humanity of Jesus as well as the deity of Jesus. We only have eight essential beliefs at ALC, but this is one of them, that Jesus is both man and he's God. And what we see here is that this son of man is going to be lifted up just like the bronze snake in the, in, on a pole in the wilderness. And uh, we all know that story, right? Maybe, maybe not. Um, uh, here's what I, su I would suggest. The audience at this time, even if you do know that story, even if you're like, yeah, bronze snake, I think I got that one. Uh, the audience who would have heard this, they would have known that story really well. They would have heard bronze snake, pole, wilderness, and a story would have come to mind. I wanna illustrate this for us by, by playing a game at, at all of our locations. I'm going to just, just give a few key components of a story one by one. And I want you to name the story, call it out, out loud, don't be shy, as soon as you've got the story, all right? 
Story number one, I'm gonna say, again, just one at a time, I'll mention the components, you tell me the story. Glass slipper. Cinderella. Okay, so one thing and you got it. Uh, hopefully you guys got it at the campuses if you're playing at home. Uh, but I had fairy godmother, carriage, ball. You didn't need all those though. One component and you got it. Let's try one more. Ruby slippers. I just need to tell you what kind of slippers it is and you know the story. Uh, again, I had golden road, a lion, a scarecrow. You didn't need those things. One key component, you heard it, and immediately a story came to mind. Now, you might not know every single detail about that story, but chances are you heard it growing up, you watched a movie, maybe you have kids, and now they've seen the movie, and you could probably give me basic plot of what happens front to back. In the same way, they would have heard bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, and immediately they would have known this story. Now again, just in case we're not all as familiar with every single obscure Old Testament story, uh, let me recap this a little bit. It's all the way back in Numbers. Moses has led his people out of Egypt. Uh, God has uh, called them on this journey. They have seen God in incredible ways as he's shown up. And uh, it's getting to the point though uh, where they're a little bit tired, a little bit cranky. It's been a long time coming. And so they begin to complain. Uh, and their complaining gets more and more dramatic. Uh, I want to illustrate this with one sentence. This is the same sentence in Numbers. They are complaining and they say in the same sentence, we have no food and the food that we do have is terrible. Like clearly contradictory, they are just complaining, they're being dramatic at this point. Now a side note, I, I, just, I wish we had more time to go here. The food that they don't have is bread that is literally falling from heaven. This, this once miraculous event is now the very source of their complaining. Yeah, there's incredible insight there. We don't have time. But in the end, there are consequences for their complaining. And we read about them in Numbers 21, verses 6 through 9. It says, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be called out and be healed. And they would look at this snake in this story and it would bring healing. It would bring immediate movement from sickness to health. And in John, we read that in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And what we would have expected to see, if, if you would have known this story and, and this audience would have known it well, what we would have expected to see is the Son of Man will be lifted up and people will look at him and be healed. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see people will believe in him and have eternal life. And that theme continues into verse 16. It says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we see the same connection, believe in him and have eternal life. Now, here's what I, I would suggest we normally do with this passage. Uh, we say, believe in Jesus, 
receive eternal life. End of story. And in that quick conclusion, what I think we do is it often turns into a, I've believed in Jesus, check the box, and one day I will receive the reward of that decision. One day I will get eternal life. But if you remember, the story that this passage is being connected to back in Numbers, it was not a story about eternal life, as we often think about it. It was a story about present life. It was a story about movement from sickness to health right now. It was about experiencing healing right now, not later. And so if we want to engage in a conversation about healing right now, it begs the question, what do we need healing from? You know, John 3.16 says that Jesus came so that we would not perish. Well, why are we perishing? There's a, a really cool connection here. In, in the number story, think about it, uh, the people were being bitten by snakes. And, and there was a physical injury that they needed healing from. Well, in the opening pages of scripture, uh, we read another story about a snake. Only he didn't bite anybody. Instead, he deceived somebody. And the results of that deception is sin entering into the world. It's a much greater consequence. In Numbers, there's just this specific group of people who are being bit, they're in need of physical healing, but in the Genesis story, we read about the snake deceiving Adam and Eve, sin entering into the world, and from then on, we see the slow perishing of all people, not just the Israelites. And here in John 3, Jesus is talking about God's response to this issue. And it's compared to, it's linked to the response in Numbers, but it's very different. In Numbers, God's response is to have Moses make a thing. And Moses is going to craft this bronze snake on a pole. It's, he's making a thing very different from John. In John, God's response is for him. God himself is going to give a person. This is going to cost God something. He is going to give of himself, and it's not gonna be a thing, it's going to be a person. And we read about God's son coming into the world. And I think the key word here is that God gives. The, the gospel, the good news about life in Christ, it begins here with God giving of himself, this, this thing that is going to cost God something great. And the question is, well, what does it then accomplish? Is it eternal life, uh, life one day as we often think about it, or is it something even better? Uh, keep reading John three seventeen through 21. It says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Now, now pause, because if, if you were with me on verse 16, verse 17 seems to be a little unnecessary. Like verse 16, God is coming to save the world. And verse 17, God is coming to save the world. There's just one clarification. It says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Like a just so you know. And I think that's there because of the word the world. The Greek, the cosmos. You see, if again, this is a Jewish audience reading this. And if this would have said, God's son is coming to save the Jews they would have immediately been on board. I don't think anyone would have been thinking judgment because it's about us. But because God is coming to save the world, I think many people would have gone, oh, if God's son is coming into the world, uh, it's not gonna be good. 
This is going to be about judgment. And so we see this little clarification. Uh, uh, God loves the world. God is talking about the world, not just the Jews. I think this is an introduction to the diverse, multicultural salvation that Jesus is bringing. It's gonna go right into the next chapter where Jesus is gonna come on the scene of a Samaritan and his work is going to apply even to them. And in a Jewish context, it does not get any other or them than the Samaritan. And so we see this incredible insight into God loves the world, the cosmos, all that he has created, not just the Jews. And God is not going to judge them as they would have expected. You know, John 1, we see that the, the world, the cosmos, was created through Jesus. And here in John 3, we have this idea of the cosmos being saved through Jesus. It's an incredible picture. But if you keep reading, there's a reason why uh, God's son is not coming to judge the world. Finish it out with me. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. The judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right, they come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Now, the reason that I think we often read this passage and we conclude, believe in Jesus, receive life after death, again, life after death one day, is because of a misunderstanding of the word judgment. I had a theology professor in college who all the time, he would say, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And he would say it with this weird accent. I learned later he was quoting a very famous movie. So I don't know if you've seen The Princess Bride. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> Speaking of judgment, I'm feeling it right now, okay? <laughs> I learned later it was from a movie. It was always strange, but all, I'm telling you, all the time he would say this phrase, I don't think that word means what you think. And we'd come in so confident of, I learned about this in Sunday school and all the time. I don't think that word means what you think it means. I don't think judgment means what we often think it means. If you had to imagine judgment, draw a picture of it, what does it look like? It typically looks like two groups of people one is bad and one is good. And uh, typically there's a judge kind of on a throne making these decisions about who is bad and who is good. And there's kind of separation. And then there's consequences uh, dealt out uh, in terms of the, the church. Judgment often looks like a heaven and hell conversation where now God is deciding who is in and who is out. It's very authoritative. Um, I don't know if you've heard anyone talk about judgment like this, uh, but from now on, notice that if someone does talk about judgment like this, they're always on the good side. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, no one talks about judgment like this and says, I'm the one who's going to be separated and bad. They're always the good guys in this scenario. Uh, just just a, an observation. And, and I think people craving this type of judgment, wanting judgment for them, for those, I think they're gonna be disappointed. I love the way that Rachel Held Evans puts it. She says, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. I think people craving judgment for those people, they will be offended by the gospel and who it lets in. 
you see, I don't think God judges in the way that we expect him to. And I don't think judgment is what we expect it to be. The word that we see here is the noun judgment. And this is what already exists among the people. It's part of the reason why Jesus isn't coming to judge the world. It's because we are already experiencing judgment. It's actually why he's coming, to do something about it. But what is judgment? It's this Greek word. Uh, It's called krisis. Uh, This is what it looks like in Greek and uh, English transliteration. Um, There is a right way to say this word, okay, and I'll illustrate that by the next slide. Um, who here says, who here would call this candy, again, at all the campuses, who would say this is a Reese's, Reese's peanut butter cup? Let me see those hands, if that's you, Reese's. Okay, look around. Uh, these are my people who sometimes mistake I's and E's, and that's okay. Uh, where are my Reese's people at? Come on, throw those hands. Reese's peanut butter cups. Okay, not as many. I learned recently that it's actually the wrong way to say it. I'm still saying Reese's, okay? But it is a company named after Reese. And so it is Reese's peanut butter cups. Again, I'm still saying Reese's, which go back to my other slide. Creases, okay? Creases said like Reese's the incorrect way. But now every time you see Reese's peanut butter cups, you're gonna be thinking of Greek, so that's gonna be fantastic. But my my real question here is, does this word look like an English word to you? If so, call it out. Crisis. Crisis. Uh, Etymologically, this is where we get our word crisis. I would suggest to you that crisis will evoke different different imagery than judgment. I I think we think about these two words very different. I think they are very different words. I want to reread to you those two verses where this word appears, and instead of judgment, I want to put in the word crisis. And again, I would suggest we would see this differently. John 3, 18, there is no crisis for anyone who believes in him. It's as if crisis has been resolved. Because you remember, it goes on to say, those who aren't believing him, aren't believing in him, are experiencing crisis. And so we see there's no crisis for anyone who believes in him, crisis resolved, The crisis, John 3, 19, is based on this fact. And he goes on to say, this is the crisis. Again, it's one that already exists. It's why Jesus is coming. What is the crisis? Well, if you continue reading the rest of what we read, God's light came into the world, but people didn't want it because people loved the darkness because their actions were evil. You see, there is a crisis And God is going to do something about it. On the surface, I I would suggest it does seem like there are two groups of people here. It seems like there are those who are in the dark and those who are evil. And at the same time, there are those who are good and those who are in the light. Um, But if we reread verse 20 a little bit, uh, who hates the light? If you look at verse 20, it says, all who do evil hate the light. And my follow-up question would be, well, who does evil? You see, the the story of Scripture, we see author after author, this theme comes up, that we all do evil. We've all sinned, and every single one of us in those situations, we prefer the darkness. It's not an an us and them. It is an us situation where we all have experienced this. Uh, Let me illustrate this for you. Think of the last time that, that you messed up. 
that you sinned, um, you probably don't need to go back too far, uh, but bring that sin to mind. And, and maybe it was a big one, maybe it was a mess that you've created. Who in that situation, in that scenario, as you're thinking about it, which one of you would say that your response to it was, I cannot wait to confess this to someone? Oh my goodness, I've messed up, I've sinned, I cannot wait to bring this into the light. The next person I see, I'm gonna tell them all about it. Typically not where we go, right? Our gut reactions are to cover it up, to hide it, to clean ourselves up, to pretend it didn't happen. Now, now again, just in case you haven't messed up recently, just in case you don't, uh, clearly you can't think of the feeling of like, man, I, I really hope no one finds out about this. I really hope no one sees this. I wanna show you a clip that will bring this feeling right to the surface. Uh, probably gonna be a little cringeworthy, you're welcome. Uh, but it's from one of my favorite shows. Check this out. It just gets better and better. Now, now think about this. We have all been in a spilled chili situation. Am I right? I mean, I, I look at him and he's trying so hard to cover this up. You know, I mean, he's, he's trying to clean it up, but I mean, the carpet is stained. It's all over him. I, I'm asking the question, why are we bringing the papers into this? Like now those are destroyed. And he's, he wants to keep this into the darkness, but clearly this is coming into the light. His coworkers are gonna come onto the scene and they're gonna see everything I mean, this is embarrassing, right? But in reality, if you know the office, this is Kevin. This is just what Kevin does. He's messing up all the time. He's very accident prone. And that's what this is. This is an accident. This isn't a sin issue. And I think if we're honest, again, if we'll do some, some self-reflection, if we'll be a little bit vulnerable, at least with ourselves, we can probably recall a spilled chili sin situation. You know, and, and a time that we've messed up and, and it's, it's all around us. Again, it's messy and our, our gut reaction is to keep it in the dark, to, to cover it up, to clean it up, to pretend like it didn't happen. And if we can get there, if we can acknowledge that, then it will clarify the next verse, verse 21 of this passage for us. Uh, we will see that there are not two groups of people here, those who are good and those who are bad. Something else is going on, because we're all evil in the sense that we prefer the darkness. And if we can get there, again, my, my question is for verse 21, those who are moving to the light, are they those who do what is right already? Are they those who are good people as opposed to the bad people? Or instead, or are those who are moving to the light, are they doing what is right by making the decision to move to the light? Yeah, I would suggest there's not two groups of people here. Those who are moving to the light, they are doing what is right by moving to the light. That's the invitation I see here, to look at the Son of Man lifted up and to, experiencing, and to experience healing right now, to experience this movement into light right now. I think the implications of eternal life in this passage are huge. The hope that we have as believers in Christ that Jesus conquered the grave and, and one day we will too, that is huge. But as we look deeper, what I, what I see here is a conversation about movement right now. Not, not one day, but right now. I, I would put it this way. If you're taking notes, this is what I'd write down. 
believing in Jesus is not solely about movement from hell to heaven one day, but movement from darkness to light, from sickness to health right now, right now as we look upon the Son of Man lifted up. Jesus did not come for the good. He came for the world, the cosmos. I don't see two groups of people here, the good and the bad. I see those who recognize that they are in the darkness, and this is an invitation into the light. I see those who recognize that they are spiritually ill, and this is an invitation to look at the Son of Man lifted up and be healed. And so I wanna finish with a a self-exam. What does this actually look like lived out? I, I think it looks like how did God step into our perishing to provide healing in the first place. I think he gave. He gave up that which was most important to him. It cost him something great. And Jesus willingly gave himself up. Spoiler alert, alert, he goes to the cross willingly, willingly lays down his life. This is the gospel. And so what does healing and moving to the light look like, practically live out, lived out? I would say it looks like participating in what God is already doing. It looks like giving ourselves in response to him as he gave himself. Uh, this is our mission statement at Abundant Life Church, if you're new. It's giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Hopefully, if you've been around for ALC for a while, uh, that's become cliche to you in the sense that it's overused. You know it really well. It's popular. It's memorized. We are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others, but inherently that means it's going to cost us something, which often brings fear of what is it gonna cost? Is it gonna cost me my money, my time? Uh, Am I gonna have to commit to something? How much is this gonna cost me? That's often our response to the idea of giving ourselves. But if we would look at God here and his response to us in the midst of crisis, it was he gave And if we will look at us giving in response to him as participation in what he is doing, as movement from darkness to light, as movement from sickness to health, we will see giving ourselves very differently. I think Henry Nouwen, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, he just sums this up in such an incredible way. He says, what is the gospel costing you right now? Our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. What a bold statement. Our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. Although it seems like people only give to receive, I believe that beyond all our desires to be appreciated, rewarded, and acknowledged, there lies a simple and pure desire to give. What is the gospel costing you? And my follow-up, if you're gonna reflect on this week and challenge yourself this week, my follow-up would be, if the gospel is costing you something, to whom is it pointed towards? Who is your generosity being directed at? You know, God loves the world. He gave for the world, the cosmos. God gave for those who complained against him, those who turned their backs on him, those who did not recognize him, those whose deeds were evil, those who preferred darkness to light. God gave for them. Who are we giving towards? Is our generosity a multi-ethnic, multi-political, multi-religious, others-oriented, cosmos-directed type generosity like God's? This week, I wanna challenge you, reflect. How are you doing? If you wanna make the gospel good news to others, it looks like giving of yourself. 
Because while this passage seems to have one takeaway, life after death, one day, I would suggest it's about movement right now also. As we participate in what God is doing, as we move from sickness to health, from darkness to light, my question is, are you experiencing it? I wanna pray and close that, that we will experience it. Pray with me. God, as we begin to understand the, ra- the ramifications of you loving the world, God, I pray that that first would impact us. God, that means us. That means those who prefer darkness. That means those who are sick. That means those who strayed from you. That means those who are evil. God, you love us. And your invitation is to us to look at you lifted up and and to move into health, to move into light, to experience you in powerful ways right now, not one day. Jesus, we thank you about, about eternal life in you, but Jesus, I see that that life begins now. And so would you invite us into it? Would you allow us to experience it and would the world recognize it in us, I pray. All God's people said, amen.